0: Welcome to Civil Action, this is Brian Kabatek coming to you from the Kabatek LLP law firm in Los Angeles along with Sean Karnikian. Each week we get together and we talk about some recent cases that have come down from the Court of Appeal, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal, the Supreme Court, the California Supreme Court. These are cases that are relevant and should be relevant to your practice if you're a plaintiff's lawyer, or if you're interested in plaintiff's law and we try to make the cases easy to understand something that you might be interested in looking at later you can look up and you can read the case for yourself because while we try to guarantee our legal analysis with sean here we can't guarantee anything right sean i'm trying my best here well trying your best sometimes just isn't good enough okay so today we're going to talk about six cases we got the first one a united states supreme court case that deals with side prey and class actions the second is a case that deals with the paga the private attorney general statute in california next we're going to talk about an expert declaration in malpractice professional negligence type cases followed by a uh, interesting case about disqualification of lawyers in Partition action, but it should pertain to disqualification issues about lawyers anywhere. Uh, and then we're going to follow that with an insurance case. And finally, we're going to talk about a incident at a fraternity um, that turned really bad and uh, what the Court of Appeal did with that. So the first
1: case that we're going to talk about is called Frank— Tell us,
0: tell us about the first case, Sean.
1: All right. It's a case— What's the first case, Sean? The first case is Frank versus Gallos. That's not very descriptive, but it involves— Uh, Google. And it started out as a lawsuit against Google for violating federal privacy laws. And then ultimately, it settled where uh, the class wouldn't get anything. And it was a Cypre-only agreement. Now, Brian, can you tell us what a Cypre is? Sure. Cypre is French. It's not French. It's Latin. It might be. But can you tell us what it means? It's Spanish. Well, we're not looking for the origin here. Is it Armenian? Can you use it in a sentence?
0: Sure. I cypray the case. And what would that mean? Actually, cypray is the process by which some portion of a case ends up going to a charitable entity or a charitable organization, which has traditionally been used in class action cases. So what happened in this case that's interesting is that it involved a Google Internet campaign, uh, and they sued on it, the plaintiff sued on it, and instead of getting any kind of injunctive relief Uh, What they really did is they got a bundle of money that went to attorney fees and to a charity because they determined that it would be difficult to distribute $8.5 million to the some billion users of of Google at any given time.
1: That's right. Actually, it wasn't a billion. It was 129 million class members. But who's counting? Mm -hmm. Anyway, so the case settled, and it went to final approval, and someone objected. Uh, someone by the name of Ted Frank, who's the uh, plaintiff in the
0: case. Well, well-known objector whose agenda to um, control and limit class action cases is pretty famous, and he's been pretty aggressive in his attacks, and he's sometimes very successful in his attacks.
1: That's right, and he uh, objected to this particular settlement, but the court finally approved it, Um, and then it went up on appeal. The objection, a ruling on the objection or the final approval went up on appeal, and the Ninth Circuit affirmed that as well. But between the final approval and the Ninth Circuit's um, review and affirming of the approval, another case came down. Brian, you know what that case was?
0: Yeah, it's important for us to talk about the Spokio case. So Spokio uh, is a case that came down from the United States Supreme Court in 2016. And what the Supreme Court held in Spokio is that if you're pursuing an action in federal court, you have to have Article Three standing in order to pursue it. And the argument in that case, which came out of the uh, telephone um, uh, privacy-type cases with robocalling, uh, is the argument was being made is that while The phone calls themselves may have violated a specific statute. There was no injury in fact, and so therefore somebody didn't have any standing. The Supreme Court more or less made a finding that you have to have specific standing, even if there is a statute that's violated which has a specific amount of damages. You still have to have some kind of injury in fact there to be standing. The
1: words they used was concrete and particularized injury
0: in fact if only you knew what those words meant right Sean? i don't
1: but that's what the paper says in front of me that's what the supreme court said and that's they're a very important body sometimes
0: but what I think is important that came out of Spokio is that effectively the court said you don't need much of an injury. So even just getting a call and taking time out of your day or having your phone ring or something like that where you're affected is enough for there to be an injury in fact, but there has to be an injury in fact for you to be able to recover.
1: That's right. So This case, when cert was granted by the uh, Supreme Court to review the Frank versus Gauss to Google
0: settlement. The the Cypre issue specifically. So sorry to interrupt you, but I think it's very important because as this case crawled its way up to the United States Supreme Court, the plaintiff's class action bar became extremely concerned that what we were going to be dealing with was an elimination of Cypre in its entirety or possibly a severe limitation on Cypre. And they even had oral argument. And the issue was kind of limited to
1: the Cypre issue. So that's what it was all about. But since Spokio came down before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal got to do their analysis of that final approval, now the Supreme Court sent it back and asked for more briefing on that issue.
0: Well, they actually remanded it, I believe, back to the Ninth Circuit, didn't they?
1: Well, for, after a roller argument in the Frank versus Gauss case, they said, go back, brief us on the standing issue, and then they remanded. That's right. right,
0: so ultimately what the holding in this case was a remand of the Ninth Circuit. They punted on the Cypre issue. However, um, what's really telling about the case is to read uh, Justice Thomas's dissent. It's very short. It's short enough that even Shaunt could read it. And what he held is... Basically, he wasn't worried about Spokio. He says they have injury in fact. They've, they've met the standard for there to be injury in fact in the case. And then he went to the bigger issue, which is Cypre, and he concluded that because the settlement agreement didn't provide members of the class with any recovery whatsoever, not even any injunctive relief, he, uh, he said he would have found that the class settlement was not valid, not enforceable, no Cypre, goodbye. So it's an open issue. I think you have to be concerned if you're settling a case in federal court that has a CIPRE only, not an injunctive benefit. But I think one of the ways around it is to start talking about what kind of actual injunction you're going to get to protect the class. If you're dealing in a case like this with, what, a hundred and some odd million people, you're never going to be able to get them all the money, but you might be able to get injunctive relief.
1: Yeah, I read something actually just to give this some context about what's going on in the background. Uh, Frank now says he has another Cypre case that's that he can tee up and take up to the Supreme Court. So
0: I have no doubt about that. I, I think he is absolutely a activist when it comes to these issues. And I'm choosing my words carefully because I think he's threatened to sue me before for comments I made in the press about him. So I want to be careful. He is an activist who has a particularized agenda that he's advancing. He has an absolute right to do that. But this be clear, when you see his name appear, he is he is not looking to make money off these cases. Predominantly, he's looking to uh, change the law and effect change.
1: And based on um, the comments from Justice Thomas, we can see the trend going on over here. So keep an eye out
0: for that. Let's go to our next case, Moore versus Noble LA Events. Sean, what are the
1: facts? So uh, this was an employment case, a PAGA case. Uh, PAGA is the Private Attorney General Act that deputizes an individual to step in the shoes of um, the attorney uh, attorney general to come in and go after people for employment violations. So the PAGA representative, or the plaintiff in this case, was a security guard um, for various, ve- employed by a company working at various venues here in LA. And there was a total group of 23 aggrieved employees. Did you
0: just give away that we're located in Los Angeles? I'm sorry, we're
1: we're not in Los Angeles. Just this case was we're broadcasting from an undisclosed location, a bunker somewhere. Brian's bunker. Please send help. Um, So there's 23 total aggrieved employees, and I call it aggrieved employees because they're not a class. Courts have started to make it very clear that these are not class actions; they're they're its own animal. But it is a representative. What
0: kind of work do they do?
1: Um, They are security guards, or the fancy term that they're given are lobby ambassadors. And they're employed by a company called Noble LA Events, and they work at venues like I, I need uh, a lobby Ace ambassador.
0: Hotel. I need a lobby ambassador.
1: Brian needs a lobby ambassador. Maybe that could be my next career. So what happened in the case? Um, so Noble's counsel withdrew. And Noble was one of the defendants in the case. That defendant's counsel withdrew. So their answer was struck. They were deemed to be in default. Uh, the plaintiff was toil- told to file a um, first amended complaint, allege a specific amount because you can't get a default on a— blank amount so he alleged a specific amount and he sought a default it included that specific amount by the way included six hundred thousand dollars in paga penalties Uh, the court rejected entered default but rejected the proposed judgment on the default multiple times due to clerical errors clerical
0: errors made by apparently at least according to the opinion because if you're the plaintiff's lawyer and listening to this i apologize but it According to the the court's opinion, the clerical errors were made by the plaintiff's lawyer.
1: That's correct, and and as some might know, d- defaults require almost you know letter perfect forms filled out, and for good reason. The other side's not there to object and uh, kind of give their uh, way in on on what you're doing. So uh, it was rejected a number of times, and then ultimately uh, the court rejected the proposed judgment because it didn't call for 75% of the PAGA penalties to go to the LWDA. And now why would that be a problem, Brian?
0: Well, because that violates the law. So what PAGA requires, and this is, I think, the important part of the case, PAGA requires 75% to go to the LWDA, Labor Workforce Development Administration. Agency, I think. Administration or agency? I think agency. And that um, 25% go to the aggrieved employees. Because what happened in this case with that 25%, which actually was about $150,000? It, it,
1: it was, well, it, it's even worse than that. It wasn't just going to one person, not not just that 25% was going to the PAGA representative. Uh, the last time the plaintiff submitted the uh, the proposed judgment, he also submitted a brief arguing that plaintiffs should receive 100% of the PAGA penalties, nothing to the state, nothing to the rest of the aggrieved employees, and that's definitely a problem. So ultimately, the the uh, court denied it and um, just dismissed the case against that yeah, defendant.
0: Threw, the court threw the case out in its entirety, but here's what I think is the important portion of this case if you handle PAGA cases or you want to understand PAGA. absolutely positively goes to the state of California, the LWDA, but 25% goes to the aggrieved employees. So if you've been in a position where you think that 25% goes entirely to the person bringing the PAGA action, you're wrong. They might be entitled to an incentive award. You might be able to convince the court of that, but that 25% more often than not is gonna have to go to all of the aggrieved employees.
1: Yeah, we've heard some uh, parties on the other side of some of our PAGA cases argue that that's fine, it can go all to the representative or a couple of representatives, and we don't find that that's the case. There's some law that in passing has, or cases that have in passing mentioned that that might be okay, but that's not the law.
0: So let's go to our next case, Ryan versus Real Estate of the Pacific. This is a 4th um, uh, Appellate District, Division One of the uh, Court of Appeal, um, and I suspect it's out of San Diego. And a case, that comes out of San Diego. What are the facts, Sean? In,
1: in fact, it's out of La Jolla. So uh, the Ryans lived in La Jolla, and they were trying to sell their house, and they were working with uh, real estate agents. P- uh, real Estate of the Pacific is the group. They're basically another name for Sotheby's, or they're a affiliate of Sotheby's of some sort, and um, the agency moved for summary judgment against the Ryans, um, arguing that—well, the Ryans were arguing that the agency failed to disclose to potential buyers that—
0: Let me—though I think what's really important about this is the facts are—the facts are relevant because they drive the ultimate question. And here, the Ryans were selling their home. They had employed an agent— and during an open house, the neighbor comes over, and this must have been you know, a beautiful home because it sold several years ago for, for almost $4 million. That's right. Uh, and the, the neighbor comes over and says, I know you're in the process of selling this house, but you know, I, I haven't told the Ryans, but um, I'm getting a permit to expand the high size of my house and build up, and it's going to block the view. And so the agent knows that. The Ryans don't know it. And the house sells, and it's never disclosed to the buyer until after escrow closes that there's going to be this monstrosity built that's going to affect their view.
1: And it gets even worse than that. The buyers wanted to rescind the contract for the sale, arguing that we didn't know about this and the scope and magnitude of the project they're doing should have been disclosed, and based on... In part, at least, on the real estate broker's or agent's advice, refused to re- rescind the contract. The Ryan said, "No, we talked to our agents. We're, we're going to dig our heels in, and we're not going to rescind the contract." So
0: they go to arbitration against the um, the buyer, and the buyer prevails. And not only does the buyer prevail at arbitration, but the arbitrator specifically finds that the agent knew and failed to disclose. And that it was the agent's breach of his duty that caused um, the buyers to perform, and that the as a result of that, then rescinded the deal, and they had like a million dollars in attorney fees and cost, in addition to having to take the property back.
1: And so, no surprise, the Ryans decided to sue the uh, brokerage, the Real Estate of the Pacific Company, and in this case the brokerage filed a summary judgment motion arguing that the Ryans can't establish any cause of action without an expert witness as to the standard that they should be held to.
0: Right, which is generally the rule in professional negligent cases that you need an expert to talk about something falling below the standard of care. But what the uh, 4th District Court of Appeal holds in California is that, yeah, that's the rule. However, sometimes there are things that you're so Obviously, a breach of professional negligence or um, a, the responsibility of the professional, like knowing that there's going to be a monstrosity built next door, that not disclosing it, you don't need an expert declaration from that.
1: The words that the court of appeal used was the conduct required by the circumstances presented here is within the common knowledge of a layman. So, do you
0: think this is? Do you think that this is wildly expansive? or uh, rather put like a a contraction of the rule about having to have an expert in professional negligent cases? Do you think it's a substantial contraction of that rule?
1: I don't know if I'd use the term substantial. I think it's a good case to cite now when you're trying to argue, we don't need an expert to show the breach here because the conduct is so egregious. It's just like, and you can cite to kind of the facts here and, and the more words that the Court of Appeal used was that the brokers, quote, simply chose to remain silent, collect their commission, and allow the Ryans to deal with the consequences. So if you can analogize to this case, yeah, I think it's a substantial um, expansion or contraction of the requirement that you have the expert to show the breach or the standard of care. I mean,
0: for example, I think that if a lawyer were to not pay his or her client money that they're owed from a trust account. You wouldn't need an expert for that.
1: That's right. You can analogize to this and say he took the money, didn't pay it, used it himself. it's It's very much like uh, Ryan versus Real Estate of the Pacific.
0: All right, the next case we're going to consider is Jarvis versus Jarvis. No, it's not a family law case. You haven't turned into the wrong podcast. It's still we're still here in a civil action. Uh, looking at important cases that make a difference to plaintiff practices in California, and this case, um, though, involves a question of uh, disqualification of attorney. What are the facts on?
1: So it, it involves two brothers, um, Jarvis and Jarvis, uh, James and Todd are their names. So James sought partition. Jim. We could call him Jim. Sure, Jim. but but the case says his name's James. But Jim is another name for uh, James.
0: Before they started to fight, do you think Todd called him Jim? I don't know, maybe Jimmy.
1: Okay. You know. Maybe he tried to kind of make fun of him, call him Jimmy, little Jimmy. Anyway, James sought to uh, sell the property that they owned together, um, which they owned, by the way, 50-50 uh, partnership. Each one had a 50-50 interest in the partnership. Equal share, right? Equal share. Uh, so James sought to, uh, a partition by sale and named Todd, his brother, in Jarvis Properties as a defendant. Jarvis Properties is the partnership in which they have a 50-50 share. Todd hired his own lawyer, um, a lawyer by the name of Roscoe, to represent the partnership. And James objected to having Roscoe, this lawyer, represent the partnership and moved to disqualify Roscoe, arguing that he's not authorized to to act on behalf—the brother is not authorized to act on behalf of the partnership because he does not have a majority of um, the partnership. So the Court of Appeal agreed. The trial court, by the way, did disqualify Roscoe, the attorney hired. And the Court of Appeal ultimately agreed and affirmed the disqualification.
0: Right. Uh, what's interesting about this case is that there's a line of cases, and this is probably outside the scope of, of just pure plaintiff's law, but there's a scope of cases that say that if you're in a partition action uh, and you bring the action that you're no longer standing in the shoes of the entity or the company itself so that it logically would make sense, the defendant argued um, in, in this case, that they should be the ones who are able to hire the lawyer. But the Court of Appeal disagreed. And here, I think the important thing to take away from this is representation of multiple parties in a single litigation always is fraught with potential harm and potential difficulty. So a couple things I think that could happen here, first, in a situation like this, which I don't think most of us encounter in our everyday practice, is the court could appoint someone to represent the entity. Um, the court can make orders in a partition action to appoint somebody to represent which the Which is entity.
1: exactly what the Court of Appeal recommended, that they remand. One more
0: reason why I should be on the Court of Appeal, right? I don't think that's a good idea. and I think, I think it's agree. an excellent idea. Not a
1: good idea. Please, Please don't do that. Um, so that that ex- that's exactly what the Court of Appeal did recommend, though, that they send it back and suggest that the trial court explore um, resolving the deadlock by appointing a receiver or some, some sort of neutral.
0: But more importantly, and I think more applicable to our practice, is that, is that you can be in situations where you're representing multiple plaintiffs in an action or multiple parties in an action, and you get— uh, conflict waivers, we all know about that. Sometimes we, conflicts can't be waived. And sometimes you fit into that little middle area where a conflict waiver may not be enough, but um, you don't believe that it's a kind of situation which would necessarily disqualify you. And one way to deal with that would be to certainly represent one party and then go to court or to deal with after you filed the initial action, the representation of multiple parties. So for example, here they could have possibly gone to court and the first lawyer saying, I'm representing the defendant in this partition action and I think I can also represent the company and have the court make some kind of an interim order, not an advisory opinion, but a judicial justiciable issue. Can you say that, Sean? Justiciable very issue. Good. Wow. Very good, very good um, justiciable issue because of the representation. And then the worst case that you would have under that situation is the court would say, no, you can't represent both, but you're not going to be disqualified from representing who you're currently representing. And therefore you're at least preserving your ability to be involved as a lawyer in the case. In this case, what was the name of the lawyer that represented the defendant? Roscoe. Roscoe's out, done, finie, gone. And can't be involved in this case at all. Next, we're going to talk
1: about uh, Deer and Company versus Allstate. And Brian's going to talk about this because he fancies himself an insurance guru.
0: Well, thank you, Sean. And uh, again, we cover on civil action insurance cases as well, because I think they do pertain to and drive every single one of our cases in some capacity or another. Um So very complicated fact pattern in this case, very complicated legal issue, and I don't want to dwell on it and spend a lot of time, but it's important first to understand that uh, this was an asbestos type of case. There were many, many policies that were involved. I think there may have been as many as like 100 different insurance policies over time that were involved in this case, and these are stacks of insurance. And uh, without geeking out too much on insurance, what people do is they'll buy a primary policy that's usually their most expensive policy and then they they may have an excess or umbrella policy and in sophisticated cases like this with uh, the deer company um, you've got multiple layers of excess coverage so you may have uh, a $1 or $2 million primary policy, then a $10 million excess policy, and then a $10 million in excess of the 10, and then a 20 in excess of the two, first 20, and so on and so forth. And as you go up the chain, those policies become less expensive because the exposure becomes less likely. And they also generally follow form. And in this case, we dealt with a self-insured retention Um, which is not exactly a deductible. I mean, What does that mean? Well, a self-insured retention doesn't just mean that you pay a deductible based upon the amount of loss or the amount of claim at the end of the day, but it also can mean um, that you have to pay for the first, say, $200,000 of attorney fees, costs, and expenses in the litigation. And until that $200,000 is met, the carrier doesn't have any obligation to pay anything, even attorney fees.
1: So it's kind of like a deductible.
0: Yeah, it's kind of, and the court even went on in this case to comment that in some cases it's a distinction without a difference. So um, what happened ultimately here is that the self-insured retention, or the SIR, had not been entirely met, and the excess carriers were making two key arguments. The first argument they were making was there was no obligation to pay for defense costs when the underlying case was dismissed without payment. And the second argument they were making is that they had never, dared hadn't paid additional SIRs per occurrence. Um, so what the court held here, and, you know, you give an entire lecture on this topic, but what the court held here is that the SIR is the obligation they insured, but it, even if not fulfilled, it doesn't eliminate the obligation of the insurance carrier to pay its limits above that SIR, right? So, Meaning that's their obligation the to indemnify. Correct. And the more important ruling here possibly is the, the argument that was made that the carrier doesn't have to pay for defense costs uh, when the underlying cases were dismissed without payment to a claimant of any kind, and because there the primary layer had already exhausted, and the court held, no, that's not correct. And, of course, because any insurance policy has at the beginning of it words to the effect of we will pay for your defense even if the claim turns out to be false, frivolous, meritless, et cetera. And that's when you need your insurance the most is when you're being sued by somebody for a claim that's not meritorious. Uh, so-, so, so
1: they should cover even if even if the case got thrown out and nothing happened, there was nothing there.
0: And what the carriers in this case were trying to do is stick the, um, the in-policy holder with 100% of the defense costs because the case was dismissed. That, I think, would have reached an absurd result. And because you're dealing with excess and, and surplus-type uh, cav- coverage, um, that was the novel argument that they were trying to make. Okay. So that's our little um, venture into insurance law for the day. Let's go to our last case, Berenberg versus the Sigma Alpha Epsilon fraternity. Were you in a fraternity, Sean? No, I wasn't. Okay, that's good. No fraternity would have you, Was would they? this one your fraternity, Brian? This was most certainly not my fraternity. But this was, in fact, all
1: kidding aside, this was at USC, correct? Correct, correct.
0: And it did not involve men who were on the women's soccer team this case involved the sigma alpha epsilon or the sae fraternity at usc um and they had shockingly a thursday night party shockingly um and i I don't do too many of
1: those now anymore thursday night parties never they've never done them in fact
0: i think this was the first one in the history of any fraternity at usc or any fraternity anywhere uh, and what happened at the, at the party was unfortunate, though. There was a incident with the plaintiff um, where she either was pushed or fell off of a stage and um, presumably suffered some very serious injuries. Um, and what the argument in this case was, was that the national fraternity, the parent fraternity, of SAE had liability because the parties specifically violated their bylaws, which they did have a bylaw that said you're not allowed to have parties, um, you're not allowed to serve alcohol to people who are underage, and the plaintiff in this case was 19, Uh, you're not supposed to have your parties on Thursday night, um, all of which I can say with some absolute certainty the, the fraternities at USC violate on a regular basis. In fact, if it's Thursday, and school's in session, there's probably a party. Absolutely, yeah. So what the court held here, though, was... And and
1: that was a national bylaw, right, that applied to all their chapters?
0: Correct, and they had um, certain rules and regulations, uh, risk management policies that were binding on every level of every chapter and every member of every fraternity. Ultimately, this fraternity had problems. It had been um, suspended. It had had other problems in the past. And the court held that, nevertheless, the National Fraternity, which is a nonprofit corporation operating out of a different location with 200 chapters and, at the time, at least 13,500 undergraduate members of their fraternity, had no liability or no exposure.
1: So what does this mean in terms of liability or exposure for the local chapter where the actual incident occurred?
0: Well, I I don't presume that there's any dispute about the local chapter having exposure and responsibility. And I can only presume that either there was a problem with them having enough insurance coverage or it wasn't covered in their policy or um, the injuries were so significant they had to look to another deep pocket but um, what I think the, the holding here, and I, I have questions about this holding, because it does seem to me that then if there isn't some sort of parent responsibility for these chapters, what is the value of the different chapters? What do they do? If they, if they can't control what goes on and they don't control what goes on, do they have no exposure, no liability? And I think that's a question that the court answered uh, in the affirmative. They have no liability and no obligation.
1: Which is surprising because what's the point of the bylaws? What's the point of having a national kind of governing body that sets out rules, that sets out standards, if you're not going to make sure that those standards are being adhered by? You know, it's not just a suggestive document that they're coming up with and saying, hey, here are some good things you guys should think about doing. You know, it's bylaws that they're required to comply by. Presumably, if they had learned about something like this, they would have done something. So, I think by setting out those bylaws, they have an affirmative obligation to make sure that those bylaws are being complied. N- not by. to
0: mention, what's the social purpose here? And you know, if you're not going to give yeah. liability to the to the national organizations for some degree of oversight and and some rule making and responsibility then what you're really doing is you're putting 100% of the burden on the local chapters, on the local organizations, and and there may be a a bigger social issue here than that. Thank you for listening. Uh, We appreciate you listening to everything that we had to say today. We look forward to the next one. And keep us in mind, if there's any information that you want to give us, you want to talk about any of these cases, please reach out to us.
1: And we'd like to hear your feedback. So if you like this, if you didn't like it, write a review. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and any other platform you're listening on. If you want to keep hearing us, Uh, you can follow us on social media and all platforms. We're at Cavitech LLP, and our website is online at kbklawyers.com. So we'd love to hear from you, and please subscribe and uh, leave us some feedback. Thank you.